Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Ubuntu Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Ubuntu Podcast. I'm here with none other than... What's good, everybody? It's David. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> hey, what's up, y'all? This is Dow. Welcome to another great episode of the Ubuntu Podcast. Yes, welcome back. We want to, first of all, recognize and thank all of you for your engagement with us. Now, let's do a small recap. We just finished off our international development series, and a lot of the focus was actually on power dynamics. In particular, we used two very frequently used terms, racism and colonialism. Today, we'll focus on these two concepts more specifically, what our understanding of colonialism looks like and what are some of the practical ways it's played out in our lives. But before that, I'll be doing this segment of Africa in the news. So for this segment of Africa in the news, I actually want to focus on the ongoing political and humanitarian situation in the East African nation of Burundi. In Burundi on May 11th, uh, two people were actually killed in a grenade attack on a bar in the largest city, Ujimbura. Now, this attack actually raised fears of further violence continuing ahead of a really divisive of presidential election taking place next week. Witnesses actually claim that the bar was visited often by members of the ruling party's youth wing, the Amanarakor. Now, why does this matter? Burundi has dealt with a lot of political violence since 2015, when President Pierre Nkurunziza ran for a disputed third term in office. As a result, hundreds of thousands of people fled to neighboring countries in the post-election violence. Now, Nkurunziza is not seeking re-election next week, but tensions are definitely rising following a series of recent clashes between the Mbonarakur and members of the opposition CNL party. In a report published in January, the Burundi Human Rights Initiative alleged that opposition supporters have been beaten to death by Mbonarakur members and buried in secret cemeteries. Now, there's also been criticism from the international community over the decision to hold elections in the midst of the spread of the coronavirus. And as a result, on May 14, Burundi actually ordered WHO officials to leave the country within 24 hours, declaring them as persona non grata. Now, the direct reason as to why they were kicked out was not specified, but as I mentioned, a lot of it may have to do with the criticism that they received for holding elections, for facilitating rallies during a time where many people are on lockdown and practicing social distancing. In addition to the ongoing political situation as well, there is a humanitarian situation taking place within the country. Now, according to the International Organization for Migration's Displacement Tracking Matrix, flooding across the country has actually displaced an estimated 39,342 people. And that number is actually still rising as homes that were flooded continue to collapse. And so following the flooding, the Burundian government and humanitarian organizations helped to really provide a temporary relocation site for those that were displaced. So the government has actually been able to provide food and essential household items, but overall the response has actually been really strained because of a lack of resources due to low level of humanitarian stocks. In addition to the strained humanitarian response, there are a lot of health risks that will arise because of the floods that took place. Stagnant and contaminated water actually attracts mosquitoes, which can then increase the risk of malaria, and overflowing latrines can cause cholera outbreaks. Back in 2019, malaria and cholera outbreaks were widespread in Burundi and inflicted a lot of damage. And while the malaria numbers themselves have reduced so far this year in Burundi, the country has still seen two significant outbreaks of measles and an unidentified skin disease that actually causes leg ulcers. Of the 112,000 internally displaced people in Burundi, more than 36% don't have access to pharmacies and 93% of the displaced households can actually afford healthcare. Now more than ever, there's an urgent need 
need for health assistance. And with the spread of COVID-19, the Burundian health system will continue to be stretched. Now more than a million people urgently need health assistance. And with the spread of COVID-19, this really threatens to, to stretch and endanger the ability of the Burundian health system to respond effectively. So that is this week's segment of Africa in the News. All right. Excellent job, Hanak. That was a super informative Africa in the News segment. Remember to all of our listeners, a quick reminder, make sure that you check out the links that are posted to our episode descriptions. They always go in depth about the amazing topics that are coming out in the world that we're talking about. And it's important that we continue to do our own learning, our own engagement, so we can really step into being Ubuntu with our brothers and sisters around the world. And so I'm excited for this conversation for multiple reasons. One, we're going to be talking about a word (laughs) that is often said, but not often understood, and that is colonialism. And But I'm also excited because I am going to be taking a little bit of a step back and really serving as a facilitator and interviewer to my co-host, Hinnock and Dow to really hear from their experiences and perspectives as members of countries directly that have been really impacted by colonialism. I think they're the experts of this conversation. And so I'm going to let them have it. You know, I'm I'm still me. So I'm going to still say a couple of things here and there. Y'all know me, but I'm going a, I'm to, a, you know, I'm going to try to reel it in because this is you know, this is they wagon. <laughs> so, but before I hand the mic over, that was a pun, get it? Because we all, okay. Anyway, before I do that, I want to just quickly frame the conversation. As I mentioned, we are going to be talking about colonialism. And I think when we came into wanting to do this topic, we really decided we wanted to like reclaim the word in a sense and take things back to the basic, to the foundational level. In our podcast, we've been having amazing conversations about international development and systems and this and that and really high lofty academic stuff. But oftentimes I think it's okay for us to recognize that we have listeners who are at various points in their journey into understanding and being a part of the African diaspora. And so we want to make sure that everyone can really engage at the level that they so desire. We hear words often in the social justice world. The word colonialism is a big one. We hear words like decolonize yourself or, you know, that's a colonial narrative. And I think it's okay because at all of, at one point, all of us were in the position where we were like, what actually is colonialism? (laughs) We need to really be honest and figure out why does it matter to the story of Ubuntu and to the story of African mass. And again, we don't want to sound preachy. We don't want to sound overly academic. So that's why a lot of the conversation is going to be centered around the lived experiences of us as co-hosts. And one of the last things I'll say is, in my understanding, I'm trying to figure out what colonialism is. As a non-immigrant Black American descendant of slaves, I would also, I would often ask myself, you know, like, what could I have in common with a Black person in the UK who speaks Patois Jamaican English or a Black woman in Haiti who speaks French or an African person in Equatorial Guinea who would be speaking Spanish. And a simple way to answer that question is colonialism. The reality is that colonialism is essential to the story of Africa, the story of Africans, and, and helps us understand how we are all where we are in the diaspora and why. And so I'm going to submit it back over to Down Hanak. They're going to give an even more in-depth kind of breakdown of colonialism and its connection to Africa. Get it, y'all? Go ahead. So to just kind of break down imperialism, so what does that look like? So imperialism is actually the policy of extending the power and dominion of an empire or nation to forcefully impose its rule or authority over other nations. 
So what are some of the ways that this happens through military, economic, social, and political dominance? And it's always motivated by money. And so going back to this understanding of Africa now uh, and why Africa is quote unquote poor and experiencing so many systemic challenges, we can actually trace that to colonialism and how colonialism is sustained through oppression. And that oppression is uh, through cultural, economic, political, and lingual uh, means. And so the ramifications of colonialism can actually take a really long time, it can take decades, centuries to fully unravel internal division in different countries along maybe ethnic, religious, social lines. It can be through the increased nature of internal conflict, cultural dispossession, weakened economic systems, or failed political institutions. Different countries that might struggle with having weak political systems, whether it be through weak governments, authoritarian governments, and just weak political cultures. Yeah, that's that's a really great that's a really great explanation of how colonialism works, Hanak, and the process of it. Thank you so much for that. Dow, I want to ask you a question. Can you speak a little bit to what was the what was colonialism look like in Africa? Like, how did that happen? Why? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about how this connects to the motherland. So colonialism in Africa, for me, I, I like to point out there's two phases of colonialism and imperialism on the continent. The first phase for me was slavery during the slave trade, where Africa African people were being taken from the continent and brought to the new world and to Europe. You know, that was the first phase of colonialism in a way where foreign powers were exerting their power on the continent and its people, where you had over 13 million African people were brought to the new world. And so to perform duties for European powers. And so that was the first phase. For me, the second phase is when it was officially intact on documentation. And this happened during the Berlin Conference of 1884, the scramble for Africa. This phase officially made it uh, for European power to curve up Africa as it was, as if it was a piece of pie. And so you had European powers such as large as France, Great Britain, Germany, and as small as Belgium get large pieces of African countries, uh, African continents that were bigger than their own countries themselves. And so this is the part where we talk uh, where we talk about them the most about as if people, uh, the scramble for Africa and the Berlin Conference. But we don't really talk about the first phase as much as we should. The slave trade and European power exerting their power on the continent. And so most Africans, by the time colonialism ended on the continent, uh, have had experienced two generations under colonialism. We we can also include countries that were un- outside the continent where there were large, there was a large diaspora of African people such as Haiti, Cuba, and Brazil when they gained independence in the late 1800s from their colonial powers. So their experience is still as relevant and that's very similar to the experience of African countries from their colonial powers. Extraction, African people performing a duty, labor, European powers. And so one quote for me that kind of just in a way just brings this together, ties it all together, is from one of my favorite, Arthur, and from one of my favorite books on colonialism from Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. It was economics that determined that Europe should invest in Africa and control the continent's raw materials and labor. It was racism, which confirmed the decision that the form of control should be direct colonial rule. This, in a way, just kind of show you raw material and African resources motivated Europeans to curve up Africa, but African people performed the duty to get these materials to European countries. So yeah, that's the breakdown for colonialism in Africa. That was a great, great explanation. Thank you so much for that. Y'all really um, y'all bringing the heat to this conversation, so I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy to be a part of it. I want to take it so I know we're talking about the the bigger picture, the abstract, the broad, the history. So 
now I want to distill that and connect it to you all's lives. I want to know in terms of colonialism, like, was this something you were ever taught about? I know both of you were, have experiences in American education system, but even like whether it be school or anywhere, was this taught to you the reality of colonialism and what happened to our people? And what is it, if it wasn't, what are things that you're just now learning or coming to terms with? And why do you think that there is so much ignorance or taboo around this topic, you know, as far as colonialism goes? Colonialism was, for me, it was, I think when I was a child, I always had an idea of what it was. I guess so, because I was, when I was, when I was a child, I was around my grandparents. My grandfather, for example, he was born during colonial rule, during the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan. My grandfather was born during World War One, just one generation after we were colonized by the British. He saw the empire at work. So his experience, he saw colonialism at work and how colonialism was extracting, you know, whether it was goods, raw materials from the country. Uh, the, the, the Sudan, for example, was known for cotton, performing cotton and tea and coffee for the empire. And so the British, British servants, most majority of the time are, you know, indigenous people performing duty for the British empire would come collect taxes. And so and that tax would be from, from 15 to 25% of your, how much you farm during harvest season would go to the empire. So you, you would be taxed and given to the empire. And so my, my grandfather, when he was growing up as a young man, he didn't like this idea. So him and a couple of his friends actually sabotaged one of the tax collection, you know, mission when they, they would come and collect this tax, they would take it to a garrison, to a town, you know, where the British were because the British were in direct rule. So the people who were performing these, these tasks were local people, but the tax, the taxes, when it, when it was taken, it was taken to the British official at the garrison. And so w- what they did is my grandfather, they, they sabotaged and took the tax collection back and took it back to the villages. And so he himself as a young man was arrested and spent time in prison because he was resi- resisting British rule by taking the tax, the tax collection that was supposed to go to the empire. He had to go prison to prison for that. And so that is my grandfather lived experience of living under the empire. And through it, he, he became a soldier during World War II. So he became a soldier, so a Sudanese soldier, well, a British soldier, because it was a British empire, a British colony. They, 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 this experience is something he always told me about and his idea of what, what it meant to be anti, anti, uh, anti-colonial rule activist uh, in the time of, in, in the height of British rule. This was as a young man before World War II, you know, the British still had great power and exert exertion over the whole, pretty much one third of the world population. But as I start to grow up, uh, as my, my reality as a, as a child, this was in the midst of Sudanese civil war. So I started to understand my, my, my own reality in this, the legacy of colonialism. My grandfather talking about it. I come from a country where we had had civil wars and genocides, and this is all con- can, can be attributed back to British rule in the country and their divide and rule in the country and just the legacy it left behind. It left people behind without an identity. It left people behind without a, a coherent national identity where people could unite around. And so thus we had problems. And I had to flee my homeland when I was young to live in Kenya because of the these legacies that British had left in my country. And so that was for me that that was always my my first my first idea from my grandfather lived experience and from my 
my own experience of having to live through a civil war, knowing that the issues at core go back all the way to the British rule in the country. Now, I didn't get to learn in depth until I started to go to school in the States here when I was in middle school and high school, learning about slavery, learning about colonialism in Africa, in Latin America. That's when I first started to get more and more in depth and the brutality of colonial rule, because I, I, I think my grandfather told me so much about colonial rule in the country in Sudan being a British colony, but he himself did not tell me the brutality that was taking place. You know, that was something you just kind of want to forget. But going through books and learning in school, you start to see the brutality of colonial rule in Africa, in Latin America. That for me was how I how I came around colonialism and the meaning of colonialism and the impact and its legacy on African people and the continent to this day. Yo, that was dope. Your grandpa is a G. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that is, that's, that's fire right there. I hope I can't amount to have half as much bravery if, if time demands me to do so in the time that it needs, because that's real G. That's really also dope to hear that you actually learned about colonization of African people in school. That was not the reality for me. Um, I did not learn about that until I was in college and I learned about it mainly through my relationships with people like you, which is why doing this kind of work is so essential because I was not formally educated kidding anything connected to the diaspora or colonization. So what about you, Hanok? How how has this been for you? Did you learn about this? What was your experience? Your stories, I mean, what you shared about your grandfather is so interesting. To have like immigrant parents and then to be Ethiopian is when it comes to colonialism and understanding our history, it's been very interesting for me because I've heard so many stories about the Italians and the whole, I'll get into it a little bit more later, but the impact that they had and how Ethiopia was the only independent nation and the the collective ability for the whole country to to fight against the oppressor and to win not once but twice you know to never have for for the Italians to never have full control of the country is a great source of pride for a lot of people and I'd say for me just when it comes to colonialism and my educational experience with it I remember as a kid I was always really into geography I've talked about this too and like maps and I remember that there were a couple of like atlases and little trivia games that I got as a kid and there was this one game where you could like click on a country and then it would tell you like the official language like the capital and I remember doing that for a couple of countries and then I think it was for I think I hit Portugal and then hit Portugal on the map it said the official language of Portugal is Portuguese. I was like, oh, that's cool. It was like another little factoid that I remembered. But then hitting another country, it was like Mozambique. I hit Mozambique and then it said, the official language of Mozambique is Portuguese. And I was just thinking like, that's so weird. Like how can these two countries have the same language even back then as a kid? I was like, how does that, it's so random. How can they speak the same language and be so far apart and like culturally be so different? That was actually around the time where like, I heard like my dad and other people say like, oh, uh, France colonized uh, France colonized like Ivory Coast, Portugal colonized Mozambique, and then I was thinking like, oh, this is really interesting. So they colonized them, so that's why they speak the same language. And I remember as a kid thinking like, oh, that's why they have more cultural ties supposedly, and that's why they speak the same language. But it wasn't until I got older, like Dow said, when I learned about slavery, when I learned about the real like brutality of colonialism, that I understood the way in which it was done. I recognized later on as I got older that it was done by force, it was done by oppression, and that in a way is what a lot of these uh, communities with the diaspora has in common. Like David said in the intro, someone from Equatorial Guinea speaking Spanish speaks the language because it was imposed on them. As I got older, the realization that it was imposed through force really started to get to me and it, it got me more interested in learning more. But it was also a very sobering reminder to me of just how authority and oppression can be used on um, everyone in our community. 
Mm-hmm. So that's so interesting. You kind of, in a way, stumbled. <laughs> you stumbled upon learning about this by the genuine ridiculousness of what it is as a kid being like, this doesn't make sense. Okay, y'all getting deep. I like this. I really appreciate the where this conversation is going. One of you, one of the responses from you all really kind of prompts this next question. Dow, you talked a lot about how you, I really think you did a good job of like mapping, like this was the connection of my, this is how colonialism impacted my life as it stands today and even my reason for having to leave my home country. And so I want to ask both of you, and for Dow, this might be asked or answered, but if you have more to talk about it, please say so. But specifically for you, Hanok, in that same light, you know, when we think about colonialism, for those who were colonized, it, rep- it represents a history of erasure and loss. And as Africans with direct lineage to nations on the continent, whether, you know, it's been colonized or not, as you mentioned, Hanok, what role do you find colonialism played in your understanding of your nation's identity? identity and history as it tries to move forward as post-colonial and like what are the things you always really mentioned it well but like were there other kinds of contradictions or things that just didn't sit well or tensions and how your nations are trying to move forward and how that impacted you and your family a lot of contradictions <laughs> i can tell you that i think for me my, my country in a way is just Sudan is just like always just, no, the greatest Sudan, Sudan, North and South, always represented, you know, this idea, you know, land of the Blacks, land of great diversity, right? Over 500 different tribes and ethnicities. But within that, it's just we have never known how to manage that diversity, tendency, and care. And that can be attributed back to colonial rule in my country, because when we were colonized, we weren't just colonized by the British, we were also colonized by the Egyptians, who were our, who were our previous colonizers before the Sudanese people kicked them out in 1880s. And so we had been Egyptian colony going back a a couple of times since the 1820s when the Egyptians and the Ottoman exerted their control over over Greater Sudan because they wanted to control the Nile. And so that's how we became a colony for Egypt and the Ottoman Empire when Egypt was under the Ottoman Empire. And so that was our first introduction to colonialism and foreign rule in the country. And so with that came its own problems. You know, it came a process of Arabization of the country and its people, erasure of ancient people and cultures and traditions such as Nubians, Bija, Shuluk, and so forth. So now you were having people, identities and cultures be erased by a foreign power. And with that comes an introduction of a foreign, you would not say a foreign religion, but introduction of a religion of one of the great religions of the world on its people, because now it falls under one of the great empires of that time, the Ottoman. So when the Sudanese people kicked out the Ottomans and the Egyptians, I think people are just kind of like, oh, we're free, you know, we're going to do our own, you know. Sudan itself never had, you would say, a central authority before the Egyptian rule or even after the Egyptian rule. It was just kind of, you know, different kingdoms and chiefdoms within the country with their own rules, their own traditions, all own cultures and so forth. And so by the time we were we were colonized by the British, the British just kind of kept intact the same colonial you would take colonial mindset and outline the Ottoman and the Egyptians had in the Sudan. And so with now the new colonial master, you know, we had kind of like a pyramid in the country, kind of like in Latin America, you know, it was just the European on top, you know, the Egyptian was the second because they were, you would say, uh, they were uh, the orchestrator on the ground. And then, and then based on that, you had colorism. So those from, you know, skin tone, you know, uh, just divide and rule African people based on skin tone. And so 
know, from lightest to the darkest. And so that that didn't sit so well with a lot of Sudanese, because here you have a country named, you know, land of the blacks, but yet here you have a colonial master using that blackness against its own people, against the people it was ruling over to get what it wants. And so that colonial legacy to this day is still so deep and so divisive in the mind of all Sudanese people that when we think of the problems the countries are going, the both Sudans are going through today, you automatically, you can you can trace it back to the colonial rule and how the colonial uh, the British were ruling the country. Yes, it's, Sudan is a million kilometers. It's a large land. It's bigger than Western Europe. That in itself being a million kilometers means that you have a great diversity of people from north to south, east to west, linguistically, culturally similar, but different from one another. With the colonial rule, that in itself became, and it just in itself just kind of stayed in the psychiness of the Sudanese people. By the time we gained independence, that never left. The new colonial masters now were Sudanese themselves against their own fellow countrymen and countrywomen. And so that is what has caused civil wars and genocide in the country because of that colonial rule where you can trace back specific you know, policies that were put in place for over two generations in the country. It still has great effect today on all Sudanese people when it comes to the reality of the country, whether it comes to ethnic ethnic strife, uh, ethnic conflict, uh, weak governments, dictatorships, you name it. That that is colonial legacy at work in the country. It's hard to think of how do you get rid of it when it's been with you for so long. And, and I, th- I think that is a fight and a war. African people, not just Sudanese people, are fighting, you know, in their psychiness to get rid of that, the stain of colonial legacy that still impact their lives to this day. Wow. Yeah, that's a really, really great response. What about you, Hanak? Yeah, Tao, I mean, to talk about how colonialism really exacerbated the ethnic lines and the division is is really i think it's really relevant across the continent and then even in the ethiopian context as well the victory over the italian forces and to kind of go more into that there was the first war that took place between the two countries so to go more into the ethiopian context with colonialism specifically with the italians it actually has a lot of parts to it so the first part was back in the 1890s, right? Back 1869 to be specific, Italy was actually looking to catch up in the scramble for Africa. So a lot of European countries had colonized a lot of parts of the continent. So Italy just wanted to sort of catch up to that and to uh, hold claim to some parts as well. So they actually purchased the port off the Red Sea in Aseb, which is actually part of now modern day Eritrea. And so within those, within the next 20 years after that, they actually controlled a significant part of East Africa, parts of Eritrea, Uh, modern-day Somalia and modern-day Libya as well. And so as a result, the Ethiopian Empire was actually losing access to uh, the Red Sea at the time, which they were not thrilled about. So in 1887, clashes actually started to take place between Italians and then local Ethiopians. The Italians were actually looking to pacify Ethiopia in a way. And so when when a new Ethiopian king took power of the Ethiopian kingdom, the Italians saw it as an opportunity to actually pacify the country. That emperor, Emperor Minilik II, was at the time actually supported by the Italians and they actually signed a treaty. And so this treaty is actually the trigger towards the first war between the two countries. So it's called the Treaty of Uchale, which is a pact that was signed in Ethiopia by both the Italians and the Emperor Minilik II of Ethiopia. And so in this treaty, it actually specified that Italy would provide financial and military aid to Ethiopia. And then in exchange for that, Ethiopia would actually recognize Italy's control over what's now present-day Eritrea. What's interesting, and this is where the manipulation 
speculative part comes in is that there are actually two versions of that treaty. There's a treaty in Amharic and there's a treaty in Italian. And in the Italian treaty is where the problems actually start to surface. So in the Italian treaty, Ethiopia is actually considered as a colonial protectorate of Italy. So basically like a colony in a way. And then the Amharic treaty actually doesn't state that. So there are two different treaties, but then this one clause is actually what triggered uh, increased violence. So in 1890, the emperor... Emperor Minilik actually, he debunked the claim and then he denounced the entire treaty in 1893. So the Italians, by force, attempted to impose a protectorate over Ethiopia. So that led to the Battle of Ottawa in March 1, 1896, which was the decisive battle in the war that ensued. And so this is significant because this was actually the first African victory over any European power. Ethiopia actually assembled 200,000, over 200,000 citizens from across the country to collectively fight the Italian forces uh, from all around the country. That led to the Italians being pushed out of the country. And that was Ethiopia's basically first victory over the colonial power so back in 1896 and then for the second time that was actually in 1935 and so this was during world war ii the second italo-ethiopian war the leader at the time benito mussolini he actually wanted to invade ethiopia as a attempt to basically reclaim italian pride um, over what they perceived to be an embarrassment to you know be defeated by an african country and he even promised employment opportunities to italians in this new empire that they would conquer and build what's important to actually remember is that during this time the then emperor Haile Selassie actually went to the league of nations which was the predecessor of now the united nations and made a plea for help and then in the plea from help he actually says apart from the kingdom of the lord there is not on this earth any nation that is superior to any other should it happen that a strong government find it may with impunity destroy a weak people then the hour strikes for that weak people People to appeal to the League of Nations to give its judgment in all freedom. Then says, God in history will remember your judgment. And so the Italians carried on with the invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 with violence, oppression. Ultimately, even then, during this second attempt, they actually never had full control of the country. But even during this time, there were mass atrocities that were committed within the five-year kind of occupation period that they had. Specifically, in like 1937, there was a massacre that took place in the capital city where over 19,000 men, women, and children were murdered in the capital city um, within three days as sort of like a, a form of revenge for an attack that was made towards an Italian colonial officer. There were like widespread atrocities that took place during both attempts to colonize the country. I just recently learned about like the massacre that took place in Addis Ababa during the second um, occupation. And so to like really go more into the history shows you that even though we weren't quote unquote fully colonized, there was still a lot of destruction that was done towards Ethiopian people. The impact that it has now, I mean, I think it's underestimated in a way. I'd say for me, just understanding the the, the toll and, and the real brutality of of a colonial power like in this circumstance kind of made me understand why it's it's such an important part of national identity to say like we were never colonized we were never conquered we fought our way want to fight you know we didn't this was imposed on us but it happened but we still fought back and we found our way to freedom in a way so just getting more into the history was really important for me to understand why it's just so important in terms of the identity of Ethiopian people and even today like I do see despite the fact that we were never colonized I do see the internal divisions that we have now along ethnic lines. Right now, the country is still struggling. You know, it's still polarized along those ethnic lines. So I guess what's contradictory about it is that collectively the country fought against this one 
oppressive force, but now there's still the struggle internally where those internal divisions still remain. And even though we fought against a common enemy in a way, now we're still struggling with each other. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. Thank you for going really in depth with that. Like that is, I didn't know most of that, pretty much all of that. (laughs) And so that is an incredible history. And I feel like I just want to say something really quickly to our listeners, like in both of your responses, Dow and Hanox, you know, though there's a lot of information, like I really encourage everyone to like listen beyond the facts to really see what's being said. Like there's so much to grab here. One, about the audacity of so many of these European empires and rulers who thought they had so much um, entitlement to our bodies, to our land, to our labor also the levels of like manipulation and just depravity that these countries resorted to to try to kill and steal from our people and we think about how can I not have how can we not see that impact in what's happening today and around the world and we think about so many things that need support and development in and around the diaspora we look at these powers and all of the money and resources I mean the decades and centuries they put into trying to destroy us and trying to disarm us and trying to um exploit us, how can we not see the direct connections to what is our experience today and even the many ways that we have incredibly triumphed and persevered and won? And so thank you all for that those incredible responses. And so I want to ask another question, really take it back to the both of you and thinking about the the real severity of colonialism, the somber history behind it, but also the incredible resilience. I feel like that's juxtaposed today with like lately there's a growing trend to use this word colonialism almost like as a fad, kind of as I mentioned in, in the framing, you know, there's all kind of examples where the word coloni- co- like colonizing and, and colonialism and colony is used in ways that actually don't align with history and that are more so about other things that are disconnected. And so I want to know from you all, does this usage feel okay or harmful or inconsiderate of the history behind it for Africa and other places? And should we be thinking about using the word colonialism in a different way? So it's a great question. It's tricky. I think for me, it's tricky because at the end of the day, I think us living and growing up here in the West, society as a whole does doesn't want to speak about colonialism, you know, and its legacy and its 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 impact. Just it's something that's taboo, you know. It's something you know Western countries themselves don't want to come to grip with and acknowledge. Just because once you acknowledge, you know, that pride, you know, the great the great nation, the great empire, you know, something that you know a lot of Western countries kind of attach themselves toward too not toward that myth it just in itself would die if you talk about colonization to its truth to its true to its truth fully but i think social media in a way kind of has made colonization you know or decolonize your mind you know a trend you know kind of like when you saw black panther you know decolonize your mind you know it was it was something that was popular for us it became a popular trend we say decolonize your mind you know as in a jokey way but never fully talk about colonization and its legacy and its impact that it has left on all of us as African people all over the world. In a way, I don't, I don't, I don't mind it becoming a, a trend. I think because in, it, I, I'm, I'm talking here. I think from my own, I think an intellectual mindset or perspective. If I see a word, you know, 
conversation in a Twitter post. And it's something that I'm interested on. I, I'm, I'm not going to go past it. I'm going to look at it and see the issue because I have learned things from Twitter, from just, you know, the word conversation trending, you know, it was this piece of history that happened in 1860 or 1780, something like that. And it was a history that I didn't know. And I love history. And I went beyond that, that Twitter post and looked at that, that event of itself on Google and found the history, you know, I led through it and was like, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know this. This event took place here. It took place in Ghana, you know. I didn't know this event took place because it's something that was not never taught. At the same time, becoming it, it just, just the word colonialism becoming a trend. Well, that the debt is a problem, and so I I see the problem there. Or people not wanting to go in depth themselves with the word colonization and its legacy. Yeah, I agree with you, Dow. I think. One of the things that I'm learning is that history has a lot of value and it can carry a lot of emotions for people. It can carry a lot of pain for people as well. It's just something that I've learned recently. And that pain, I think, David, you mentioned this before, like it can be generational and it can take a very long time to heal. So as you just said, Dao, having some having this word being used in a way that doesn't acknowledge the depth of it all, I think can can be inconsiderate. I think it's just important that we just recognize the impact of our words. We, we recognize kind of the deep context and connotation that our words have. So with colonialism in particular, that's one thing that I'm learning as well, just to like remember that this word has a strong meaning to a lot of people, to a lot of communities, uh, whether we realize it or not. So I definitely agree with what you shared as well, Dao. Y'all, this was straight fire. <laughs> Thank you for what was a great conversation. We're wrapping up, but I just want to extend, I'm reflecting in this moment for real about the history of colonialism. This was challenging. This was fulfilling a very rewarding conversation. And I hope our listeners are doing the same. Our hope was that we could have a conversation about a concept that was, you know, really heady, you know, really fraught with a lot of pain and, and, and history, but really talk about it in a way that was really real and relatable. And Hanok and Dow, I definitely think you fulfilled your mission on that. And so want to thank the both of you. Also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Please remember to check out the links in the bios. Remember that we are on social media, that you need to uh, follow us and engage with us, or you don't need to, but you should, because we have such amazing content coming out. Please stay tuned. Reminder, this is episode seven of our eight episode season, which means the season finale is coming up and we have amazing things in store. We have an amazing special guest who's going to be talking to us and hosting a conversation with us about African people really finding ways to facilitate a return to their place of origin, to their homeland, and supporting efforts that connect them back to who they really are. And there's an exciting DNA reveal. <laughs> we're not talking about paternity DNA, but we're talking about ancestral DNA. We're taking it all the way back. Your boy has spit in the tube and and has sent his DNA to foreign places to tell me what it is that I come from. Comes from the continent, y'all. Hey, well, we'll see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Look, shocker, I'm black. (laughs) 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 No, well, yes, as Dad said, I come from the continent. Uh, But y'all gonna learn where exactly. I'm super excited. It's gonna be obviously in very return fashion. Maybe one day y'all keep peeping upcoming seasons. You'll even see me get to return to where I'm from. So that all goes to say, y'all need to tune in to the next episode. Keep in contact with us. We want to know what you have to say. DM us, you know, tag us, whatever you need to do. Let's keep the word going for Ubuntu. And thank you all for rocking with us so hard this far. And so I'm signing out. This is David J.A.Y. Curtis. Peace and love, everybody. Thank you.
Uh, thank you all so much. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at the Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. You can also follow me directly on Instagram at Henny Yilma, H-E-N-I-Y-I-L-M-A. Hey, y'all. It's Dow. Don't forget to follow me on IG. So it's Dow underscore Dodol. Hey, everyone. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at David J-A-Y Curtis with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.